everyone wants to become a better leader. The new book, How to Lead, Wisdom from the World's Greatest CEOs, Founders, and Game Changers by David M. Rubenstein shows you how. Learn the principles and guiding philosophies of Bill Gates, Jeff Bezos, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, Warren Buffett, Oprah Winfrey, and many others through illuminating conversations about their remarkable lives and careers. Learn from their decades of experience as pioneers in their field. Learn How to Lead by David M. Rubenstein, wherever books are sold. Recording. Go right ahead. Excellent. You wrote recently that you were talking to a group of high school students over Zoom, as one does, and one of them asked you a question that you didn't quite know how to answer. You know, I think it was just his kind of the straightforward nature of the question. Uh, so tell us, how did, how did a 17-year-old manage to stump a guy who literally wrote a book about the modern-day making of the Republican Party? I'm sorry, but I still don't understand the exasperation that was in his voice Tell me. Uh, kind of what took me aback a little bit. Hmm. Um, what do what do Republicans believe? And what does it mean to be a Republican? This week, the Republican National Convention tried to answer that question. Did they? Imagine the life you want to have. One with a great job, a beautiful home, a perfect family. You can have it. The Republican Party is the pro-America party. I want to tell you the uncensored truth of what we believe in. President Trump is the pro-America candidate. Republicans trust you to think for yourself. The Republican Party's commitment to individual rights and self-government is as necessary today as it was in 1860 when we won our first presidential election. I encourage you to see beyond the facade that so many other politicians employ. That is the world that Donald Trump and the Republican Party are after. And yes, you can have it. This is Nerdcast, where we know who we are. Who are you? My name is Tim. (laughs) Tim Alberta is our chief political correspondent. Who are you? And I'm Scott Bland. You know, it's like anything else, Scott. Like, you know, you, you've uh, you've watched a million baseball games on TV, but like if an alien landed here from another planet and was like, what is baseball? And what does it mean to be a Republican? Uh, uh well, um, <laughs> uh, I don't know. Let me, hold on. Let me think about that. What do Republicans believe? What is what baseball? Is baseball? I guess it was it was a little bit like that. And, uh, you know, I, I don't know. I can't remember the last time somebody even asked me that question, frankly. Sure. I think the reason that question is so confusing for some people right now is you have this group of Republicans, these former Trump staffers, talking about how dangerous they think Trump is for the country and also for the party. I'm not going to try to get into the mind of Donald Trump because I don't think there's a whole lot of space there. I think he's a kook. I think he's crazy. I think he's unfit for office. And I'm a Republican, and he's not. That was what Senator Lindsey Graham said on Fox News in 2016. And then you have the Ted Cruz's and the Rand Paul's and the many, many others of the world who once said things like this and now are singing from a completely different songbook. Like Lindsey Graham, for example. This is what Senator Lindsey Graham said on CNN in 2017. You know, what concerns me about the American press is this endless, endless attempt to label this guy as some kind of kook, not fit to be president. So, total contradiction there. What do we take from all this? Yeah, I mean, I can't imagine, I mean, 
I don't know, Scott, like think about the formative political experiences that you had when you were younger and how they shaped your perception of things. For me, when I was a kid, I, th- I was one of those kids who would stay up on election night and like color in my own map, uh, my own electoral college map. So uh, 2000 election and all the, the drama around that, obviously, was a really big one. You know, I had to change my map the next morning. I colored it in and then obviously, you know, Florida was was in dispute. But then also, of course, 9-11, the Iraq war, I think, you know, those aren't as expressly political, but obviously they had a huge effect on our politics. You know, I guess for me, it was really, you know, the Bill Clinton impeachment and, you know, 9-11 and the response to, I mean, mm-hmm. like, yeah, like those moments when you're coming of age politically, they have such an outsized, I think, influence in shaping how you view politics and how you view the world. You know, this was eye-opening for me to the degree that you think about how a 17-year-old kid... What do Republicans believe? ...who has come of age over these last, you know, four and a half, five years during Trump's ascent and his nomination and his presidency, you know, how that shapes your... And I would think how it jades your view of politics and particularly of Republican politics. What does it mean to be a Republican? You know... It's got to have a lasting impact on, I would think, the psyche of a lot of young voters. By the way, whether they love Trump or don't love Trump, you know, a 17-year-old or 18-year-old kid that is head over heels for the MAGA coalition and is planning to cast his first vote for Trump, you know, he's going to be, I think, in many ways formed by this experience for for many, many, many years to come, maybe even the rest of his political existence, just as much as the 18-year-old who is marching with the resistance and uh, mm-hmm. and can't wait to get to the polls to cast their first ever vote against Trump. I mean, this is, you know, all of those early political experiences are really formative, but this in particular would seem to be, uh, I guess, just have an even longer lasting impact on someone. Yeah, I mean, it's not just about kind of the act of picking sides. It's a question partly about what it means to be a political party and what a political party is supposed to be organized around. Basically, it's I feel like that's a maybe a more fundamental question than the ones that people from a previous generation would have been grappling through and thus, you know, stayed with them through their lives when they were, as you said, kind of making that political coming of age. Right. That, that's the thing. The, the organizing principle of the Republican Party is is about the president. Yeah, it's 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 Trump, right? I mean, Trump is the party. The party is Trump. And, you know, again, that's that's a pretty fantastic departure from everything that previous generations experienced. I mean, you know, obviously we've seen big political movements before. We've seen, you know, huge electoral swings, but we've never really seen this cult of personality. This movement, and I mean, it's even, I even struggle to call it a movement because it's just, I mean, movements even traditionally sort of believe in very concrete, specific things. A a movement is moving toward something. And it's not always clear with the president and his party. In fact, most of the time, it's not clear what they're moving towards. As I wrote in this piece the other day, I mean, it's, you know, there is this insatiable appetite for conflict, but the conflict itself is is usually not means to a specific end. Mm-hmm. And that feels just, I, I mean, it is weird. And it, and it feels, I think, so novel, because, again, if you go back to 
you know, just 15 or 20 years, I mean, I think even less than that, you had a much clearer understanding of what these two parties stood for and where the clear lines of ideological delineation were. And that's just different now. I mean, it's just, it's, it's very hard for anyone to articulate sort of a clear purpose a clear meaning of republicanism circa 2020 and and i and i do think that that's that goes beyond just kind of an abstract dilemma for me i i think it's a real political problem for trump uh, you know they're trying i think in this convention to project a vision for how they would govern the country but it continues to just be this sort of very vague kind of catch-all of uh, of kind of culture war terminology and and it's really light on any kind of specific illuminating promises we're going to take a short break but before we go a few dramatic readings of things people in and around president trump's circle have said over the last few years in tell-all books and interviews all for your listening pleasure here's omarosa manigal newman in trump world loyalty to him is an absolute and unyielding necessity Akin to followers' devotion to a cult leader. Anonymous, the mysterious Trump administration official. The sheer level of intellectual laziness is astounding. Andrew McCabe. Donald Trump would not know the men and women of the FBI if he ran them over with the presidential limo. Ted Cruz. I'm going to tell you what I really think of Donald Trump. The man is a pathological liar. He doesn't know the difference between truth and lies. James Comey. I once again was having flashbacks to my earlier career as a prosecutor against the mob. The boss in complete control. The loyalty oaths. The us-versus-them worldview. John Bolton. He second-guessed people's motives, saw conspiracies behind rocks, and remained stunningly uninformed on how to run the White House, let alone the huge federal government. Everyone wants to become a better leader. This groundbreaking new book, How to Lead, shows you how. David M. Rubenstein is one of the visionary founders of the Carlyle Group and host of The David Rubenstein Show, where he speaks to leaders from every walk of life about who they are, how they define success, and what it means to lead. Jeff Bezos, Richard Branson, Warren Buffett, Bill Gates, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, Phil Knight, Oprah— All of them and more are featured in How to Lead. This essential leadership playbook illustrates the principles and guiding philosophies of the world's greatest game changers. Discover the experts' secrets to being effective, innovative leaders. Walter Isaacson proclaims, reading this invaluable trove of advice from the greatest leaders of our time is like sitting in an armchair and listening to the masters reveal their secrets. Pick up a copy of How to Lead, Wisdom from the World's Greatest CEOs, Founders, and Game Changers by David Rubenstein. Available in hardcover, ebook, or audio. We're back. Marco Rubio observed that every movement in human history... In human history that has been built on a foundation of anger and fear has been cataclysmic. And warned of Trump's rise... This isn't going to end well. Your thoughts, Tim. Yeah. um, Boy, if the Marco Rubio of 2020 could hop in the DeLorean and go back and meet the Marco Rubio of 2015, what an interesting conversation they would have. Right. You know, obviously, I, I think Rubio was prescient in identifying the risks posed by Trump, not just to 
conservatism, not just to the Republican Party, but to the country in many ways. Um, the you know the the delegitimizing of institutions and and the destruction of so many political norms. I mean, you know, this is the kind of stuff that we haven't really experienced before, and and uh, at least not at this scale. And uh, you know, Rubio is one of many Republicans who now has to sort of grin and bear it. Well, it doesn't have to grin and bear it, but chooses to sort of grin and bear it because, um, you know, that's the, that's the tribal nature of, of our politics generally and of Republican politics specifically. There's almost no room for meaningful dissent from Trump. All right. Here's, here's a couple lines from Sean Spicer's book, the former White House press secretary. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. <laughs> Talking about Trump would cross the line, jump, jump over, the, over line. the line and dance merrily back and forth over the line. But he never paid the price any other candidate would have paid. And then also Spicer wrote of Trump, A man who is calculating and mercurial, charismatic but erratic, and now a politician capable capable of defeating anyone, including himself. Including himself. Hmm. Spicer could have come in handy uh, with the announcement that the television ratings for the first night of the RNC lagged behind the first night of the DNC. Uh, Spicer was, you know, I I think could have stepped up to the moment and declared that the first night of the Republican National Convention was the most watched in the history of conventions, period. Why why stop at the history of conventions? You know, the the most watched television event in history. (laughs) Yeah, right. It has a nicer ring to it. It was like, yeah, it it was like the Olympics meets the Super Bowl, meets the, the series finale of uh, The Sopranos, right? Look, the the line, as it were, no longer exists as far as you mm-hmm. know, edging up to the line or stepping over the line or however you want to think about it. I mean, I remember having this conversation with Paul Ryan after he left office where he talked about how, you know, there was sort of this hot stove dynamic where people around the president, uh, you know, Jim Mattis and H.R. McMaster and and Reince Priebus and others were constantly warning Trump, you know, you can't do this thing. You can't, you know, there are consequences for doing this thing that you're about to do. And Trump would kind of edge closer and closer and closer to it. And then finally he would, you know, step up to that line and then ultimately cross that line and realize that there was no consequence to it. And, you know, once he realized that there there was just no going back. And, uh, and so yeah, whatever lines may have once existed that Spicer's referring to, um, I think they are long gone at this point. See, the, the thing I think that's interesting about this, I, I think from maybe an institutional perspective, the lines are gone. I think to, to pick an example, the, the Trump campaign using the, the White House and the powers of the presidency as, as political props during the convention this week, right? Now I'd like to invite John's wife, Jamie, to join us as I grant John, I'm not sure you know this, a full pardon. That's something that's never really been done in this explicit way before. So Congratulations, you're now citizens of the United States of America. There are regulations against it, but I, there's not going to be anything more than a slap on the wrist. However, when Trump crosses these lines, voters punish him. Right, he's been unpopular for most of his presidency. He he suffered a a big backlash midterm in 2018, and he's he's down big in the polls right now. He he's not necessarily going to lose because he's down big in the polls right now, ten weeks before the election. But he's he's down big in the polls. So in that sense, there is still a line, right? 
Uh, yes and no. Um, watching this administration, watching this president, watching this re-election campaign, you're, you're sort of constantly, at least I find myself in this position, Scott, and not to, you know, uh, lay, lay myself down on your psychiatrist's couch here, but like, I, I'm constantly in this in this weird position of like, wanting to process what I'm seeing through a prism of conventional politics and the kind of rules of the game that we all once understood to be in place and uh, I guess applying a kind of traditional sense of what's up and what's down and that the grass is green and that the sky is blue. Uh, and, and so often, and by so often, it's basically every single day, we're forced to confront these things that are um, defiant of those conventions, of those norms, of those traditions. And I think the, the trouble I have anyway is like, is not conflating the two and and not allowing sort of one to bleed into the other. And so sometimes I'll find myself sort of like wildly overreacting to something that's not actually all that crazy. And I know I'm going a bit far afield here. And then, you know, in the next moment, sort of underplaying something, at least in my own mind, that's actually a really big deal and that deserves a ton of scrutiny and criticism. And so it's like, I don't know, it's, it's, this is like, this is like an extremely hard time to be working in politics and, and in political journalism, I guess, in general. And, and, and I struggle with, with that question. Let's go briefly to talking a little bit more about this Republican convention this week. From what we've seen so far, and we're taping this before the convention is over, but what kind of messaging have you seen from Trump and from the party this week about what it means to be a Republican? And and, and do you think any of that is, is, has been successful in maybe broadening the tent a little bit? Yeah, well, so I guess a couple of things. The first night of the convention felt pretty stale to me, mechanical and disjointed, and it didn't really feel like it had any connective tissue. There was just kind of a scattershot of, of ideas and, and themes and arguments, and none of it seems terribly well tied together. I thought Tuesday night was better in that regard, that there was more of a sort of coherent message that Republican speakers were trying to convey, but also, you know, the individual uh, sort of pre-taped segments, whether it was Trump overseeing a naturalization ceremony. Today, America rejoices as we welcome five absolutely incredible new members into our great American family or congratulations. Uh, Great going. Uh, you know, Trump delivering a pardon. I'm not sure you know this. A full pardon to a ex-convict or, you know, the vice president uh, talking with a lot of uh, individuals who had stories of, of inspiration or, or heartbreak or both. Like all of that, to me, at least felt like it was in service of sort of softening the party's image and projecting an empathy that has so often been missing from the Trump presidency. Now, that's not a specific, there's no like real overarching policy. Right. That's what I was just about to say. It's the, you know, it's softening the image, whatever that is. <laughs> right. Well, and, and look, I mean, maybe, you know, part of the calculation there, Scott, if we're being honest, might be that if 2016 proved anything, it's that... I think Americans maybe are less 
interested in policy than we've ever assumed that they were, right? And that, you know, campaigns really are about, you know, who do you want to have a beer with? Or who do you find most trustworthy? Or any number of these other kind of loosely defined kind of intangible characteristics that we that we see in candidates. So I, I think that that's probably a part of it, right? Is that the, you know, the Trump folks realized that he was able to win by the narrowest of margins in 2016, despite being so deeply unliked and so deeply unpopular and viewed really unfavorably by, you know, big majorities of the electorate, only because the person he was competing with was also that unpopular and that unliked and that, you know, viewed to be that untrustworthy. And that's just not the case with Biden now. The Trump campaign, I think, realizes that it has to do some rehabilitation of his image. And um, even if that doesn't serve any specific policy priority, maybe that's maybe it's just as important. Maybe it's more important. Maybe they've decided internally that, uh, you know, the single most important thing they have to do this week is to kind of refurbish and, and sand off the very rough edges of the president. Mm. Is, is that different than the, the the goal in mind that they went into 2016 with? Or, or are we kind of seeing a similar sort of effort? You know, I think it's different in one regard, which is that 2016 was still, the 2016 convention was still sort of, not a jump ball, but it, like the party wasn't Trump's party back then. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, Paul Ryan's speech was like heavy on the on policy stuff. And and Ted Cruz's speech was obviously memorable in that he didn't even endorse Trump. And and, you know, this week has just been this sort of procession of you know, grand tributes to the man and to his accomplishments and, and to his um, mannerisms and and his, you know, what it, one speaker called him the bodyguard of Western civilization, whatever the hell that means. Right. So, um, yeah, but, but so that 2016 was, I think, a lot different in that regard because it wasn't even that there was sort of a unifying theory of how they should sell Trump to the masses. Because Trump wasn't even sold to the Republican Party at that point mm-hmm. yet. And so mm-hmm. I, I, I just feel like the priorities were a little bit different. That's a really good point. All right. So where do you think this all goes long term? And obviously, there's a lot of questions that go into that. It's whether Trump wins or loses in, in November being uh, kind of the most proximate one. But I think, as, as you were pointing out before, in some, in some ways, it, it may not matter long term for the Republican Party, whether he, he wins or loses. It's Yeah, it's not clear at all, Scott. I, you know, Trump could win comfortably. I don't think he'll win comfortably. I think if he wins, it'll be pretty close. But but he, you know, he could win in a pretty close race and, and get another four years, or he could lose a really close race, or he could lose badly, which I think is within the realm of possibility if, if everything really breaks um, against him. But I think regardless of the outcome in November, Trump's imprint on the party is is very, very durable. It's not permanent because there's nothing permanent in politics. And, and I'm not even looking out past, you know, 15 or 20 years. But I certainly think that in that medium term, that intermediate term, the next decade, decade and a half, like you're... You are going to see, and you've already begun to see, um, not just a small army of, of, you know, Trump copycats trying to, you know, channel his way of speaking and his his rhetoric and, and kind of get away with some of the same conduct and behavior. But you've also seen these sort of offshoots of fringe 
conspiracy-ridden politics that that you can trace back to Trump in a lot of ways, right? Like, you know, Trump wasn't an originator of QAnon, but you can draw something of a line between QAnon and birtherism, for example. And and so mm-hmm. I guess the point is that— Which yeah, he didn't found either, but he was a big signal booster for it, it right? That's exactly right. And, and yeah, and, and so I think, like, you know, anybody believing that Trump— and and his impact on the party, his refashioning of the party in his own image, this idea that that's suddenly going to be erased magically if he loses, even if he loses really badly, it just doesn't it doesn't mesh with what we're seeing on the ground and what you hear from voters and what you see on social media. Um, you, you know, a lot of this stuff is here to stay, at least for a little while. And it really does set up this kind of grand reckoning that's going to have to happen in the party once he leaves office, whenever that is. Hey, Tim, thank you so much. Hey, my pleasure, Scotty, as always. That's our show. And listeners, as an extra special treat, we are going to leave you today with more dramatic readings from people in and around President Trump's circle over the last few years. Enjoy. I found myself bewildered how anyone could have run a private company on the empty mental tank President Trump relies upon every day to run the government. Has any president done more to undermine democracy than this one? He lies practically every word that comes out of his mouth, and in a pattern that I think is straight out of a psychology textbook, his response is to accuse everybody else of lying. If you leave or betray the Trump cult, you are labeled crazy and pathetic. Our producer this week is Adrian Hurst. Our senior producer is Jenny Amond, And our executive producer is Irene Noguchi. Our illustrator is Bill Cookman. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, do us a favor and leave a review. It helps new listeners find the show. And while you're there, you can check out some of our other podcasts, Politico Dispatch, Politico Energy, and Pulse Check, to name a few. We'll talk to you again next week. Thank you so much for listening.